It is a blessing to be with you this morning. If you're wondering how I got the best sola, arguably the most important sola, uh, it was assigned. I am not the kind of person who would selfishly take it for myself, um, but I am grateful for the opportunity of speaking today on uh, sola fide. Would you just pray with me as we begin? God, we're going to open up your word together this morning, and I pray that that we would not view this simply as an academic exercise trying, trying to fill our minds with more information, but that our hearts would be transformed by what we see together, that we would treasure Christ more than anything. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you are a God who justifies sinners. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The doctrine of justification by faith alone stands at the center of the Protestant Reformation. It is the linchpin that holds all of the other solas together. And if you don't want to take my words for it, listen to Martin Luther, who said that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the summary of all Christian doctrine. It is the article by which the church stands or Falls. Martin Luther is a name we know well, a leading theologian in the Protestant Reformation. And as a monk, Martin Luther was assigned to a post at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. Now, Wittenberg was a small town, um, but, but a political center, and its leader was Frederick the Wise. Uh, the leader of the city, Frederick, was a deeply religious man, and he had collected for himself a rather remarkable collection of relics. In the castle church, it was said that he displayed in the church's nine aisles some 19,000 relics. People would make a pilgrimage to Wittenberg from all over Europe because they said at the, in this collection you could find a piece of straw from Christ's crib. A strand of hair from his beard that was plucked out. A nail from the cross. A piece of bread from the last supper. A twig from the burning bush, which is my favorite. (laughs) I love that. The burning bush. I don't know if it was still on fire. (laughs) Bits of Mary's hair and clothes and a host of teeth and other bones from venerated saints. And, And believers, Roman Catholics... All over Europe would travel to Wittenberg to venerate these relics because it was said that if you came and venerated a relic, you could get a hundred days of relief from purgatory. Meaning, if you took one trip to Wittenberg and saw all 19,000 relics and spent time there, you could have 1,900,000 days removed from purgatory because of that one vacation. So given its level of superstition and propensity to indulgences, Wittenberg was a prime target for one of the Reformation's most notorious figures. Johann Tetzel was a renowned seller of indulgences. He was kind of televangelist before there were televangelists. And he would set up shop in the middle of Wittenberg and cry, When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Or, 
Place your penny in the drum and the pearly gates open and in strolls mum. Now, when you hear Tetzel say those things, you first think, man, that guy was a fantastic poet. (laughs) And you're also pointed to the indulgences of a system that had become corrupt. Roman Catholicism was a system that gave grace to those who earned it. Grace was not a person in Christ, rather. Grace was a thing that was granted to you. It was not, sorry, grace was something that was granted to you, but it was grace that needed to be earned. And in this theological system, Roman Catholics differentiated between two two kinds of grace. There was actual grace and habitual grace. Actual grace affected the forgiveness of actual sins, provided that each and every one of those sins were made known and confessed. But, in the Roman Catholic thought, actual grace was not strong enough to remove the stain of original sin. In comes habitual grace. Habitual grace was pure grace and and not the result of merit. So you, you could work for actual grace... But habitual grace was actually given to you as a gift. But habitual grace did not grant you a new standing. Rather, habitual grace infused you with righteousness to give you a a boost in the right direction. In the end, after receiving habitual grace, you and, and, and performing enough deeds to get enough actual grace, you were you would be declared righteous. After you had become righteous through penance, confession, and if you hadn't done enough of those things while you were alive, if you haven't gotten enough actual grace on top of the habitual grace, don't worry. You could burn off the remnant sins in purgatory and still make your way to heaven. In Roman Catholic theology, the metaphor that dominated their understanding of justification was a medical one. Sin was a kind of sickness that needed to be cured and God would graciously infuse you with righteousness. He would give you a a vaccine, if you will, of righteousness. See, vaccines have always been controversial. God would give you a shot of righteousness in the arm to get you started and then you had to become well enough through good deeds so that God at the end would be like a kind of doctor in heaven who would let you into heaven because you are well enough. You get out of the hospital of sin and into the welcoming arms of heaven. Because of this system... Your average worshiper, or as Josh talked about today, your average peasant, all of us would be peasants, your average worshiper felt like they were the rope in a game of tug of war between heaven and hell. Sometimes, on good days, you would veer a little closer towards heaven. You could hear, feel heaven pulling you this way. On other days, when you plagued by a guilty conscience, you would veer Felt like you were veering closer towards hell. There was no assurance to any of these people that they were actually forgiven. They were actually clean, actually right with God. Martin Luther felt this deeply 
he felt this, this, this uneasy footing. And he wrote, it's true. I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I should have entered in. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear this out. For if it had gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself to death. What with vigils, prayers, readings, and other works. Yet, my conscience would not give me certainty. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more daily I found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. This kind of system built on human merit where we earn our our standing with God is suffocating. For sensitive souls like Luther, it was crushing. Luther acutely felt the weight of his troubled conscience. More, he tried to earn his righteousness with God. And when, when he felt the perfect bar of God's righteousness, he was not encouraged by it. Because the more he thought about God's standard of righteousness, the more he was convinced that he would never meet it. So God's righteousness was not a comforting thought. Luther would go on to say, I actually hated God's righteousness. At one point, uh, and because of this, um, because of this, because God would only forgive sins that were confessed to the priest, because you could only get this righteousness by earning it, and because Luther was so sensitive to his own unrighteousness, he would spend hours a day in confession. At one point, you know, in, in a monastery, you, have, you report to other monks, and, and you give confession to other monks. At one point, his superior said to him, Look, Brother Martin, If you're going to come in here and confess so much, why don't you do something worth confessing? Kill your mother or your father. (laughs) Commit adultery. Stop coming in here with such flummery and fake sins. But in this system, actual grace only came if you confessed sins. And Luther knew that sin permeated everything he did. This system was suffocating. This system led Luther to hate God's righteousness. But what changed? What changed in Luther? How did Martin Luther move from seeing the righteousness of God as a thing to be treasured versus a thing to be feared? The answer to that question is Luther understood the gospel as the message of God justifying sinners by faith. God opened up Luther's eyes to the gospel, and we think of verse we know well in Romans 1, the just shall live by faith. And that understanding of the gospel changed Luther, and Luther sparked a reformation. Righteousness, God's righteousness then in the gospel is given as a gift to those who believe. The doctrine of justification can be summed up this way. 
Salvation does not come from looking inside ourselves at our own works of righteousness, but we are justified when we look in faith to Christ alone for salvation. I want to see this in a text. I can tell you that Luther taught it. I can tell you that other reformers taught it. But if we don't see it in Scripture, Sola Scriptura, then it doesn't matter what these individuals said. It doesn't matter what I say. So go to Romans 3. Romans 3, 21 through 26 may be the most important text in all of the New Testament. It may be the most important text in the book of Romans. And in a sense, you can see everything we need to see about justification in these verses. We'll, of course, look at some other texts. But Romans 3, 21 through 26. When you, as you turn there, I'm just going to set the context for the book of Romans. In Romans 1, 16... Paul tells us that the righteousness of God is revealed. The just shall live by faith. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said in Romans 16. It is the power of God to salvation because the gospel reveals God's righteousness. In the next major section of the book of Romans, Paul wants to convince you and me and all Jews, and all Gentiles, that they are under the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In chapter, end of chapter 1 into chapter 2, Paul is going to say that all men, even Jews and Greeks, suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and that Jews cannot gain a righteous standing by keeping the law. Um, We saw that in Romans 3 as Brett read the verses right before this. You can't gain righteousness by law keeping. Law reveals sin. It doesn't make you righteous. So Jews and Greeks all under sin. The law is of no help. So then what is our hope? If you're in your Bible, look at verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. No distinction between Jew and Greek, right? There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And keep the subject of verse 23 going into verse 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. This. I think the this is God justifying sinners in this way. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, at the now time, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As we look at this passage, I want us to see three aspects of justification. First, Justification is the act in which God declares sinners to be righteous. 
Justification is the act in which God declares sinners to be righteous. Verse 21, Paul contrasts the revelation of righteousness now through Christ compared to the righteousness of God revealed at past times through the law. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But this revelation of righteousness is not a contradiction to what was revealed in the law. Rather, verse 21, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is testified to by the Old Testament. This is, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. Justification is the act which God declares sinners to be righteous. Now, the question of justification as we've seen, is at the very heart of the Reformation. For when God justifies, he declares that a sinner is righteous. When God justifies, he pardons people who should stand condemned. He clothes filthy beggars in the perfect holiness of Christ. When God justifies, he grants you a righteousness that is not your own. And if we're going to understand justification in this text and and according to how the gospel presents it, there's three attributes of justification we need to have in our minds. If we're going to understand how God declares sinners to be righteous, there's three terms you, you have to know. First, this justification is forensic. If we're going to understand justification rightly, we need a new metaphor. Roman Catholics used the metaphor of the hospital. God was a doctor. Grace was an infusion of righteousness. And you need to get well enough to get into heaven. They brought you to the hospital. But Paul in Romans 3, and the reformers rightly understood, that justification is forensic. God is not a doctor proclaiming us well in justification. Rather, God is a judge. And he is looking at sinners and pronouncing them innocent. Justification involves a change of status. It is the opposite of condemnation. We are not condemned by God as a just judge. We are not called guilty. Instead of being condemned, condemned, we are pronounced innocent. In medieval theology, you would gradually become righteous. And eventually you'd be righteous enough to be justified. In Roman Catholic theology, there was a confusion between sanctification and justification. Because we understand God's righteousness to be declarative that leads to our sanctification. They saw sanctification as the the soil that justification came out of. In justification, God is a just judge that declares us righteous. It is not, it is salvation by grace alone, not any collection of our works. So this justification, we understand justification rightly, it's forensic. God is a judge who announces, proclaims us innocent. Second, the second term you understand is when God counts us as righteous, he is counting us as righteous because we have a righteousness that is not our own. It is a forensic term, and we are granted alien righteousness. 
The righteousness that God credits to us, reckons to us, the righteousness that God declares believers to be does not come from inside of them. It is the righteousness that comes from outside of them. The righteousness of Christ. Justification is not you getting enough of your own righteousness where God can declare you as righteous. Rather, God gives you an alien righteousness. It is extrinsic, not intrinsic. And this is what Paul tells us in verse 22. You look at this text again. In verse 22, this is the righteousness of God. God's righteousness to us through faith in Jesus Christ. One of the problems of Roman Catholicism's view of Sin at the, at the Reformation is that it was too small. Sin was a kind of sickness from which you could get better. They, they downplayed the seriousness of sin. Now I do this to my, I have three girls, I do this all the time whenever they get hurt. I try to tell them, it's, it's not that bad. Like, like, it's okay, you didn't lose an arm. I try to downplay the seriousness because I want them to know that they're going to get better. And occasionally I do this even when I'm really concerned. My, uh, my five-year-old Evelyn was on a scooter and she has no fear of anything. And it's like yesterday. She, there's a hill with, on, our, on our little walking path and she just hops on her scooter and she's like, yep, I'm going down the hill, hit a crack. I mean, face, hands, and feet just like splat. And the first thing I get to her is like, hey, you're okay. It's not that bad. And I'm like, you might not be. It might be really bad, but you're... So, so I do this all the time with my kids. I tell them, it's not that bad. And that's what Roman Catholicism has to do with sin. It has to tell people, you're sick, but it's okay, you can get better. What does the gospel tell us about our sin? The gospel doesn't just tell us that, oh, your little tum-tum hurt with sin. It's okay. You're going to get better. No, it says you're dead in sin. You are helpless in your sin. But Roman Catholicism has to downplay the seriousness of sin because it has to give you hope that you can get over it on your own. But when God declares us righteous, he gives us an alien righteousness. And righteousness from outside of ourselves. So God's declaration of righteousness is a forensic idea. It involves alien righteousness. And then finally, this righteousness is imputed to us. The There is a massive difference between understanding righteousness, justification is God infusing you with righteousness and God imputing you with righteousness. God, when he justifies, counts the sinner as righteousness. He reckons them, declares them, counts them as righteous. And Paul says, In verse 24 of our passage, we are justified by his grace as a gift. If we're going to use other metaphors to understand justification, we need to understand it as a legal declaration. But then understanding imputation takes us to the creditor. Imagine for a moment you have a meeting with a bank and they tell you that you owe them $500,000 and just say, well, what do you have to say for that? And you reach into your pocket and you say, well, 
I've got 43 cents and two Altoids. What'll that get me? (laughs) Nothing. When you try to earn your righteousness with God, you owe him an infinite amount and you have nothing that you can bring to the table. You have no resources, no money. So when God declares you righteous, he credits your account with the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's what imputation is. In fact, at the cross, there is a double imputation. Because it's not, it's not that God gives you the righteousness of Christ alone. All of your unrighteousness, all of your sin is taken by Christ. And he gives you all of the righteousness that his perfect obedience earned. So when you are justified, all of your debt is taken away. And you get all of the credit that Christ earned. You are declared righteous. You are reckoned as righteous. Now if we read the book of Romans, get into chapter 4, Paul's going to use Abraham and David as two biblical examples of this declarative act of God. Romans 4, 3 through 5. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and what? It was counted to him as righteousness. So is righteousness something we earn or is some, righteousness something we receive? Keep reading. Now to the one who works. His wages are not counted as a gift but his due. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There's two approaches to God's righteousness. Either you view it as something I'm going to try my hardest to earn and you'll never get it. Or... You come to God as a pauper, empty-handed, and say, God, I have nothing but bad debt. Would you make me your own? Now, Jesus, Jesus talks to us about this position that we take to be justified. In Luke 18, one of the only times in the New Testament Jesus talks about justification, he tells us a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee walks into the temple and he boasts to God about his righteousness. God, I thank you, I am not like other men. I fast, I tithe, I give, I'm I'm righteous. God, I, I thank you that I'm righteous. And then Jesus pulls our eyes to a tax collector, the the filth of society, and the tax collector beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who is righteous? Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. Justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Do you want Do you want to be justified by God? Then you come as a humble sinner with nothing in your hands. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. 
Justification is the act in which God declares sinners with no hope to be righteous. This is an alien righteousness. This is God's legal declaration in which Christ's righteousness is imputed, credited to our account. Second, justification is based on Jesus' work. God graciously redeems through the wrath-bearing sacrifice of Christ so that he is seen to be just. One of the key questions we should have in our minds as we approach the topic of justification by faith alone, God reckoning sinners as righteous, is this. How does God, the perfectly just judge, maintain his righteousness while he declares guilty sinners to be innocent? Our culture misses the question entirely. The primary question you're going to get when you try to share someone the gospel is, well, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? Wrong question. Ask again, how can a righteous God do away with our sin and still be just? And that's the question Paul is grappling with in Romans 3. You see, the, the doctrine of justification of faith was a scandal for Paul It was a scandal during the Reformation, and it's a scandal today. In fact, when when Roman Catholics looked at the doctrine of justification by faith, they said that you're trying to make God a liar. That you're uniting Christ to to whores. They saw what reformers were teaching as a true scandal, because it is. So the question we got to ask and answer, is God just? Is God just in declaring someone to be just who is in fact unjust? So Paul gives us the three reasons God can do this in Romans 3. How does God declare sinners to be righteous? First, Christ is our our redemption. I already kind of hinted at this when I read Romans 3. Paul states the case Again, Romans 3, 23, it's a verse we've all probably memorized. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We memorize that verse, but that's half a sentence, right? We think that's a standalone verse in the book of Romans, and it's not. All are sinners, and you have to keep reading to get the main point of the verse, main point of the sentence. And all are justified by his grace as a gift... And how does this come to us? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The first ground of our justification is that Christ is our redemption. Paul explains that God graciously justifies because God has graciously redeemed us in Christ. If justification is a law court term, then redemption brings us into the marketplace. God has paid the price to deliver us from our bondage to sin. He has redeemed us from our slavery. In this redemption, we pay nothing, and Jesus pays everything. But because we pay nothing for our redemption does not mean that it is free. Jesus paid a great price. How does this justification, how does this redemption come to us? The redemption through the blood of Christ that is in Christ Jesus. 
God can justify because Christ is our redemption. Second, God can justify and remain just because Christ is our propitiation. We are justified, verse 24, by his grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The idea of propitiation needs to be central to our understanding of justification and of the gospel. In our sins, Scripture tells us we were children of wrath. We were rightly under God's condemnation. God's pronouncement of us as righteous can take place because Christ stood in our place and took our wrath. He is our atoning lamb. He bears our sins and our penalty. One of my, one of my favorite images of, of this in the Bible is the two goats on the day of atonement. You remember what happened? The priest, would, would, there would be two goats that come forward on the day of atonement. And the priest would lay his hands on both of them. And one of them was driven out of the camp to symbolize that your sin is taken away. And one of, my, one of my, I don't know if this really happened or not. It's like one of those like little folklores about the Bible. Is often the goat with all of the sins of the people was taken out of camp. And the person who led it out of camp was encouraged. Just make sure that goat finds a cliff. The last thing you want is the goat with all of the sins of the people just wandering back into the camp. That is unhelpful. It's a bad goat. So the priest would take his hands and lay his, them on the head of the goat and be let out of sin. And then he would take his hands and lay it on the head of a second goat. And it would place all of its sins on them. And then that goat would go into the tabernacle. And it was killed. It was sacrificed. It bore the wrath of all of the sins of the people. It died in their place. It shed its blood. So they wouldn't share, shed theirs. Jesus is our propitiation. The wrath of God that is rightly on our heads is taken away because Christ takes it. And he takes all of it. He drinks the cup of wrath down to the last drop. Third. We are justified because Christ is our redemption. Christ is our propitiation. And third, in this past, we say, we say in, this, in this text, we are justified and God is vindicated. Paul argues forcefully that in Christ, God's mercy and justice are not forces competing against each other. Right There's the tension. How is God merciful and forgiving and gracious and just? In the gospel, these are not two forces that are pulling away from each other. In the gospel, God maintains perfect justice and mercy. And if you don't feel this tension enough, go to Exodus 34 in your mind or go to it in the text. In Exodus 34, God is both merciful and just. And the central plot tension of the Bible is how God is both. How can God show mercy and maintain justice? And this is what God says about himself in Exodus 34. He is the Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and we love to stop there. But God is merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, loves to forgive, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So how is that tension resolved? God sends his own son in our place. In the, in the gospel, the tension of God's love and God's just anger is resolved. On the cross, God is both perfectly merciful and perfectly just in his judgment. And that's what Paul says in Romans 3. That justification by faith alone reveals God's justice. First, at the end of the passage, this was to show God's righteousness, verse 25, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over sin. How did God not kill every sinner immediately as they sinned in the Old Testament? He was patient, he was kind, but his patience was not a withholding of his justice. He was patient and just then and what is he saying verse 26 he is patient and just now it is to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus God justifies justly because Christ is our redeemer and our propitiating sacrifice this doctrine That we are justified by faith alone is the ground of our assurance. I, I don't think I can overstate how important that is. You can know. You can know that because of Jesus you're forgiven. That is not sinful presumption. It is a gospel promise. Therefore, since we have just been justified by faith, We have peace with God. So believer, when you, when the the gnawing doubt about your standing with God comes into your mind and your heart, where do you look? When Satan accuses you rightly about the sin that is in your own heart, where do you look? When Martin Luther talked about this, he says, you can look the devil in the face and say, I agree with you. I'm actually worse than you say that I am. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, where do I look? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Look at Jesus. (laughs) He is the author and perfecter of your faith. Justification uh, is God's declaration, the act in which God declares sinners to be righteous. Justification is based on Jesus' work. And third, and finally, justification is received by faith alone. 
As, you read, as we read Romans 3, 21 through 26, you see this a number of times. Verse 22, this is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a, our, as a propitiation by his blood. And how do we receive it? To be received by faith. At the end of the passage, verse 26, so that God might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Paul's repeated this three times. We are righteous. We receive this righteousness, a righteousness not our own, a righteousness through the redemption of Christ by faith. We're told in Romans 3, all of us fall short. So as John Stott said, None of us could earn this righteousness. It only comes to us by faith, which means the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it. But so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. Right? doesn't matter where you are. All of us fall short. All of us need to receive this by faith. As Paul says in Romans 1, the just shall live by faith. Anyone who will be justified, Paul says, anyone who will be justified will be justified by faith in the finished work of Christ. Justification, this declaration, this new righteousness is received by faith. As John Stott said again, to say justification by faith alone is another way of saying justification by Christ alone. But what is faith? Is faith a meritorious work? Is faith something that we do to ready ourselves to receive this righteousness? Is faith commendable in and of itself? We just all need to believe. We need to have faith in faith. No. Faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. Faith is not a work, rather faith is just receiving with open arms God's work for us in Christ. Faith is the eye that looks to him, the hand that receives his free gift, the mouth that drinks the living water. Faith, as one author said, apprehends nothing else but that precious jewel, Jesus Christ. As Richard Hooker, the late 16th century Anglican, wrote, God justifies the believer not because of the worthiness of his belief, but because of Christ's worthiness, who is believed. Faith is not a meritorious work. Faith is just us coming with empty hands to receive the gift of salvation that God has given to us in Christ. I want to close by making two separate applications to all of this. One of the questions we need to ask and answer about justification by faith alone is that what of works, right? We have spent a long time hopefully arguing, hopefully convincingly from Romans 3 that justification is not based on human merit but based on the work of Christ. But then what of works? We misunderstand the role of works in justification and in the salvation if we say that works have no part at all. The difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism on the role of works is not 
that one sees works as necessary and the other not. Now, you may be thinking, are you just undoing everything that you've done? No. Protestants rightly see works as necessary in our salvation. But good works are not the grounds of our justification. They are the necessary result. Jesus said, a good tree will bear good fruit. Not may, not could, will. If you have received God's justification, if you have been pronounced as just, then you will live justly. Works are a necessary part of our salvation. It is not the reason we've received it, but it is the necessary sign that we have. So we need to read James 2 as carefully as we read Romans 3. Faith apart from works is dead. It's dead. Dead faith. When we see dead faith, faith that says I believe in Jesus but shows no transformed life. Right? We have to, we have to say both. Second, second point of application when, Paul, when, when Martin Luther taught the doctrine of justification by faith alone, he, he wanted people to understand a very important implication. He said that if this is true, and Bible, because I believe the Bible, I believe it is, then every believer is simultaneously wretched and righteous. That every believer is simultaneously a sinner And a saint. We need to remind ourselves of that because reminding ourselves of that will change the way we deal with our own sin and the way we deal with others. Christian, you are simultaneously a sinner and a saint. This means that you should not be surprised by the myriad of sins that emerge from your heart. When you look closely at the motives and intents of your heart, don't be surprised when you see lust and greed and pride, anger, resentment, bitterness. You are a sinner and your sin runs deep. The whole of the Christian life is becoming what you are. You have been declared righteous. So even though your entire life, you will see a myriad of sins in your hearts. And in fact, the more you grow closer to Jesus, the darker your heart will appear. Even though that is going to happen, fight sin. Fight it. As Paul says in Romans 6, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You are a sinner and a saint. Now, very much pastorally, this changes the way we, we, we view others. I find it amusing that I often act shocked and aghast at the sin I see in others and very quickly look the other way when that same sin is in my own heart. Right? Probably just like me and some of those. I, I look at my kids when they get angry and I deal. I, 
don't be angry, and in 30 minutes, I yell at them. (laughs) Because they're doing the thing I've told them not to do 20 times. Right? The same sin I see in them, I, I am quick to judge them, and when I get angry, I said, well, it was just a hard day. If we understand that not only every believer is simultaneous, not only I simultaneously a sinner and a saint, but every Christian I come in contact with, I need to give them the same grace that God extends to me. If we understand the doctrine of justification by faith rightly, we will not become more self-righteous. We will not become harsher of others and gentle on ourselves. We will deal severely with our own sinful hearts and we will be gentle with others. Because we know that the sin that we're struggling with in them exists in us and is probably worse. Because we're justified by faith alone, we have the, we have the resources to give grace to others. Because the gospel is, is something that needs to be believed and lived. Justification by faith alone is a doctrine we need to embrace. We need to believe the gospel We need to believe gospel doctrine, and in our lives and in our churches, we need to see a gospel culture where we deal graciously with others. At the end of the day, there are only two conceptions of how we can stand before God. You have to choose. You either stand before him because of his grace or by his law, by mercy or merit, by faith or works. It's either God's salvation or you're your own savior. One theologian illustrated vividly in terms of the difference between ascent and descent. Either we ascend to God through our own goodness and our own effort. Either we become righteous enough on our own to earn God's final pronouncement. Or we receive it as a gift. But the gospel does not show us that we have the power to draw near to God on our own. The gospel shows us how God has descended to draw near to us. In the gospel, God descends, God stoops, God bows down very low. God graciously loves sinners. And the doctrine of justification by faith alone teaches us the unimaginable grace of God, the God who steps down to raise us up. As the Protestant hymn writer was said, Jesus, your blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy, I shall lift up my head. When the dust of death, when from the dust of death I rise to claim my home beyond the skies, then this shall be my only plea. Jesus has lived and died for me. Amen.